You know that the choir is really praising the Lord when the microphones start to shake. It's always a good sign. You know, what we just sang about in those last two songs, Ancient of Days and, and this church medley song, is about the name of the Lord being proclaimed and being praised. And I couldn't help but think as we were singing Ancient of Days, the, the wonder of the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Because right now, that's so not true, is it? So many people would deny and defile and oppose the name of Christ. And there will be a day, probably not very far off, could happen today. There will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the only one. And that's what we want to talk about this morning in the book of Acts. I want to talk this morning about a subject that can easily cause us to feel embarrassed and intimidated and very, very inadequate when we're asked to do it. And yet, it is really one of the most primary responsibilities that we have as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's important that we understand this because Jesus calls every believer, anyone who has been completely changed by his mercy and his grace, anyone who has experienced his forgiveness, anyone who is a recipient of what he has done through Christ. God calls those believers, he calls us to be witnesses of him. He calls us to go into the world and to speak the gospel and to tell people at home and around the country, and around the world about Him. Now, if we're honest this morning, we're all pretty nervous about that. If we're honest, that that thought kind of frightens us a little bit. And we have a number of reasons for feeling frightened by that. Maybe we feel unprepared, or unsure, or lacking in skill and experience, not to mention the fact that we're not quite sure all the time how to initiate a conversation and bring up the Lord, or how in conversation we can turn it and and address people's needs and talk about uh, what the Lord is doing and and what the Lord has done and what He will do in people's lives. All those things that we know should be part of the conversation. So we, we look at it and we say, well, if I don't feel very confident in that, maybe I can just avoid doing it and somebody else will do it. This is one of the most challenging aspects of our walk, and yet it's interesting to note and it's helpful to note that the response that we have and, and, and the hesitation sometimes that we feel is really no different than the disciples felt throughout the three years that Jesus was walking with them. In fact, the, only, uh, the response only changes after Jesus leaves. Now think about that for a minute. You're walking with the Savior of all mankind, the Messiah, the Son of God in human flesh, You're seeing his miracles, you're hearing his teaching, you're having time with him in a smaller setting, you're getting to hear all the words that he's saying, you're being influenced by him in every way. For three years, every day, you're walking with him, eating with him, and there's there's a sense of community there. And yet, their response to the call to go out and their ability and power to go out and tell other people about him is extremely limited. It's only after he leaves, only after he's gone, that the response changes. If you don't believe that, look at the end of the Gospels. In Mark 16, 8, it says that after the angels told them he was risen from the tomb, it says they fled because trembling and astonishment gripped them, 
And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. All four Gospels show the disciples being hesitant and wondering what happened and struggling with doubt and kind of hiding from the authorities. They're certainly not, at the moment they get the news about the resurrection, racing out into the streets and saying, hey, here's what happened. They, they kind of pull back and hide and, and kind of process. And Jesus appears and is still not quite sure. And Thomas says kind of brashly, well, I won't believe it till I see it. So there's not a, a power and a boldness here at the end of each gospel. And you get into Acts 1 and it changes. In fact, it says that after Jesus ascended, Luke, right before he starts Acts, at the end, very end, the last verses of Luke 24, says that after Jesus ascended, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now, at this point, they're not the most popular guys in the nation. The people hate them. The leaders hate them. And, and everybody's completely skeptical about the news about the resurrection. And yet, before he's gone, they're hesitant. After he's gone, they're full of joy and they race and tell everybody. So what's the difference? What happened here? The Holy Spirit doesn't come down physically, the descending of the Holy Spirit that we see. That doesn't happen until Acts 2. So what changed in their thinking? Certainly we know that once he came, there was a new fire and a new boldness and they were fearless. We'll look at that in about a month. But, but Acts 1's intriguing. Acts 1 has application for us because there's an often overlooked secret here that, that will help us in this job that kind of, let's be real blunt this morning, kind of scares us. I won't ask you to raise your hands and affirm that, but I know inside you're going, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. It intimidates us. How do we share our faith? How do we talk about the Lord? How do we share the gospel? And yet, What's going to be so helpful for us is that this secret that's here in Acts 1 is so much more simple than we would ever know. See, we get so worked up sometimes, don't we, with fear and insecurity and anxiety, which is really all rooted in pride, that, that we don't realize that what Jesus told us to do, what Jesus commanded us to do, is far easier than we would believe. So let's take our Bibles, turn to Acts 1, if you're not already there. We started last week with the first 12 verses, first 11 verses, with Jesus' ascension and the new calling the disciples had to receive the Spirit and to minister in the Spirit's power. And now suddenly you get to the end of verse 11, and it's all done. For the first time in three years, Jesus is not with them, and they're still trying to fully understand all that's happened in the last two months, let alone what's ahead. And they start back to Jerusalem. Pick it up in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. It's just right across the valley. It's not uh, any more than half a mile away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Look at verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren 
a gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And Peter said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language the field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. David didn't know he was prophesying at that time, but he was talking about Acts 1. Therefore, it's necessary that one of the men, excuse me, of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship for which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, there's a lot here, but for our study today, we're really just going to focus on one word that's in verse 8 and verse 22. But before we do that, Let's just lay the foundation in the background. We see in verse 14 that as soon as they get back to the upper room, the first thing they do and the continuous thing that they do once Jesus is gone is they devote themselves to prayer, which is a huge contrast to the laxness at Gethsemane. When Jesus says, watch and pray so you don't enter into temptation, they're snoring. And he comes back and he's sweating blood. And he says, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. And they fall asleep again. And then Judas comes with the soldiers and arrests him. And it falls into chaos. Now, 50 days later, it says, as soon as Jesus leaves, they go and they start praying. See, from the start, the early church knew the importance of of calling on the Lord. In fact, it's the only description given before Pentecost is that they were just there praying. Starting at the end of Acts 2 and verse 42, they start to move into the normal functions of the church. And they start to eat together and fellowship together and study and teach and worship and all that. All the things that, that churches concentrate on that, that, that are the emphasis. Well, we got to have, I, I was looking at a website this week, we have a rockin' worship service. I didn't know those two words went together. And we have great small groups and we have fellowship and our pastor's written 12 books and it's great. But when you start talking about prayer, everybody's like, oh, well, yeah. But... The early church bathed themselves in prayer. It was birthed and maintained by prayer. It kept them in the presence of the Lord and it unified them and gave them discouragement, which was a hu- excuse me, discernment, which was a huge need because there's this gap between the ascension and the Spirit's filling. And then we see in the bulk of the rest of the chapter that they go about choosing a replacement for Judas Iscariot. Now, one of the reasons that they did that, even though there are, at this point, the text tells us, about 120 committed believers following the Lord, was that there was great symbolism in the Jewish nation about the number 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, who was named Israel, There were 12 of them, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And when they surrounded the tabernacle in the wilderness, there were three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes. 
And when they went in, there was a representative of the 12 tribes. And they built 12 stones as they crossed the road. Everything was related to the number 12. So the disciples at this point look around and they say, we have 11. Judas hung himself and apparently, I guess, the rope broke and he fell down and his guts poured out. It's really nasty. But it had to fulfill prophecy that David had spoken. So now there's 11 of them. And they look at it and they say, to, to represent the culmination of Israel's hope and the coming of the Savior and Messiah, which was foreshadowed in Joseph, whose name is Yeshua, foreshadowed in Joseph, who saved his brothers from the famine, who delivered them and showed forgiveness for them when they didn't deserve it. Now we have the coming of Jesus, Yeshua, and, and he is the one who has fulfilled this. So disciples, we need a twelfth. It says in Matthew 19 that Jesus said to them, at, at the end of the days, you are going to judge the twelve tribes of Israel from twelve thrones. So at this point, it's logical that they replace Judas. But notice they don't just say, well, who wants to fill the bill? This is going to be kind of tough. Job's kind of hard. You're not really appreciated. They don't do that. They have very specific qualifications for the person. Look at the text. Verse 21. It has to be someone who has followed Jesus from the outset, who was there when Jesus was baptized by John, who's walked with us throughout the ministry, who's not been one of the skeptical crowd, but one of the believing crowd, until all the way up to the Mount of Olives when he left. But the most important prerequisite, beyond that there has been three years of following, is the words in verse 22. He says, they have to be a witness of Christ's resurrection. Nothing mattered more than that. Nothing mattered for a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, an apostle, more than they were a witness of Christ's resurrection. Why? Because that was and is the defining characteristic of our faith. The defining characteristic of a Christian's faith is that Jesus Christ is Savior alone because Jesus Christ is risen. And because Jesus Christ is alive, He alone defeated death. He alone can deliver us from our sins. Because He is alive, we have absolute hope and confidence that that salvation is sure. And because He is alive, there is no other option. There is nobody else. There is no other way. There is no other possibility there is no other claim that can save us. Salvation is only through Christ. So the person who would be Christ's disciple must be a person who has a personal witness of the truth and of the power of his resurrection. Now stop there for just a minute, because usually when we hear the word witness, we think of it as a verb. I need to go and witness. What do I do to go witness? Jesus even says in Acts 1.8, you will be witnesses of me. But look at verse 22, because the word here is not a noun, excuse me, it's not a verb, it's a noun. And that changes the nature of what's being said. You cannot, and I cannot, go out and be a witness, verb, unless we are first a witness, noun. You can't go do the job of the witness unless you've first been a witness. In other words, knowing what has happened, experiencing what has happened. Now, we might say, well, the disciples had an advantage. They got to see him. 
they got to eat with him and walk with him and see him do miracles. And after he resurrected, they got to touch his hands and his feet. So, of course, they could go out and talk about what they had seen. They had experienced it. So, so they're far more credible witnesses. I have to go into a culture that, that is far more skeptical. The truth is far more subjective. And, and, and I'm fighting the feeling that I get from a lot of people that I talk to. We're saying to ourselves that, that the Bible's outdated and that this is 2,000 years ago. And how could you believe in Jesus? And I'm not even sure he was real. And, 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 and Christianity even isn't really helping us because we don't really talk about Christ anymore. We talk about everything else. So how do I do this? Well, first of all, look back at the text. Because in verse 8 and verse 22, there's no mention of whether other people will be receptive to the gospel when we go and speak it. Just that we're supposed to be witnesses. And before we say that we didn't get to see Jesus with our eyes, and that that would make it easier, let's remember that Hebrews 11 says that true faith is believing with confidence what you haven't seen. And Jesus said to us, blessed are the ones who don't see and yet still believe. Those are the ones that I'm really proud of. Anybody can see this pulpit this morning. Yes, I believe, Paul, that there's a pulpit there because I can see it. But imagine if this pulpit wasn't here and I was putting my hands, I said, there's a pulpit here. You'd go, what? Somebody out there might go, all right, I believe it. You, you couldn't hold that position very long. There must be something I can't see. Silly illustration. But the point is, anybody can believe what they see. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Faith, oh, it's the belief that you have seen something with your spirit and with your heart, but you haven't seen it with your eyes, but you still know that it is absolutely true. Let's not walk around and say, well, because I wasn't a personal eyewitness, I don't touch his hands and feet. I can't really talk about him. Oh, really? How's your life changed? And then third, we need to know that the skepticism and cynicism of the world today, listen now, is no greater than it was back then. I think we love to emote sometimes and to overstate that we live in the hardest time that's ever been. No, we don't. Not yet. It's getting there, but not yet. The disciples were killed in ways that we can't imagine, persecuted for standing for the Lord. They used to fill the Colosseum in Rome and put Christians down there and let hungry lions just come out, rip them apart before a cheering crowd. You think they cheer at the Packers game. So before we start walking around and saying, well, we live in an awful, horrible time where you can't speak the gospel. Listen, you can still speak the gospel anytime you want. The power of television, the power of the Internet... Those are important, but the power of relationship, the power of a spoken word beats all of them. So look at the word in the text and then think about your life and my life. If you've trusted in the Lord and accepted his gift of salvation through Christ, are you the same person that you were before you did that? Do you think and act the same? Are your interests the same? Are your priorities the same? Are, are, are the things that you go about doing still evidence of being bondage and sin or, or evidence of the freedom that's ours through Christ? 
Is your heart cold to the Lord? Do you still rebel and push against Him and, and, and resist conviction? Or are you sensitive to the Lord and living under conviction and seeking His leading? Listen, knowing the power of His resurrection has completely changed us. And we know firsthand what it means to be delivered. We know firsthand what it means to be redeemed. And we know that it's only because of Christ. Some of you have dramatic stories in this room. Some of you can look back two, three, five years and say, if you knew me then, you wouldn't know me then. Some of us grew up in church. My life is not dramatic in the sense that I once was doing horrible things and now all of a sudden I got radically pulled out of that. I've been in church all my life. And yet at some point I knew I'm a sinner. At some point, I had to come to the Lord and say, I'm lost, I'm broken, I'm nothing. I can't get there on my own. Lord, save me. Every one of us, I pray, has come to that decision. And if we have, that means that we know firsthand what it is to be redeemed. Galatians 2.21 says, If righteousness is earned through the law, in other words, if you can be saved by living a good life and going to church and petting animals on the head and saying the right prayers, if you can do that, then Christ died for no reason. There was no point in him coming. Why would he come down and, and, and have a human body and go to the cross and die on the sin if we could be saved by ourselves? We know the truth because we've experienced it. We know the truth because it's changed our lives. Now, somebody can sit there and say, well, you're ignorant and naive. Wouldn't be the first time somebody told me that. Somebody can say, well, you're Paul, you're foolish to believe something that's two millenniums old and they'll give all kinds of false and spurious arguments about, well, God can't really be loving because there's evil in the world and how could a loving God do? Listen, none of that matters. I know what's happened in my life. And I know what's happened in your life. And I've seen some of you actually change. And you can give a lot of reasons why it's not applicable because it's two millenniums ago. I, listen, it doesn't matter. All I know is once I was blind, now I see. All I know is that God's grace has changed me and it's changed you. And it's unthinkable this morning what life would be like without Christ. It's unthinkable how hopeless and clueless, I mean, I'm already hopeless and clueless, but, but exponentially now, how hopeless and clueless we would be without the indwelling spirit. How lacking in confidence and joy and peace we would have if we didn't have the hope of salvation. We know these things are true because we're personal witnesses to the fact of his salvation through his resurrection. So here's the tough question. What does it mean if we don't want to talk about it? And what does it mean even more if we won't talk about it? Because excuses at this point don't really hold any weight. Look at verse 8. It gives us zero latitude to make excuses. The phrase is, you shall be my witnesses. There's no equivocation here to what Christ is saying. But we find ways not to, don't we? And I think it's possible that those reasons have less to do with social shyness and more to do with not being as far along in our Christian education and our spiritual maturity as we might seem to everybody else. Don't you think that had to be in play with the disciples? They weren't educated. 
Acts 4 tells us that. They looked at them and they knew that they were uneducated. They were just common people, just just hard workers, nothing special, no advanced degrees, probably no degrees at all. No one trained in public speaking, no one good at communication, constantly putting their feet in their mouth, constantly thinking about themselves, constantly talking about the wrong things. They didn't have really anything that would be remotely helpful for the assignment that they're given. So you would think maybe that as they bring up Matthias and Justice, they would say, you know, we probably ought to find somebody that's a good speaker because we know Peter can speak, but that's not always going to go well. And we know Thomas can speak, but we really don't want him having a microphone. The rest of the guys kind of faceless. They don't really talk very much. John's very much uh, in love with the Lord, but, but he doesn't show evidence that he's going to be very bold and outspoken. So, guys, we have 11. Now, we better find a leader. This is how the modern church would deal with it. Let's find a leader. Let's find somebody that will speak and be able to talk and has great interpersonal qualities. He should probably be fairly good looking. He should probably be pretty popular. should have the right business contacts. should, should probably have a little bit of money. Good pedigree, good family, good background. We should find that guy. Matthias and Justice, you're the best of the best. Do you see that anywhere in the text? All they want is someone who witnessed the resurrection. Not just the event, but someone who had been changed internally. Listen, we have to be careful not to overthink this calling. Because all that does is create stress and anxiety. The Lord has not called most of us to have overt spiritual gifts or to teach doctrine or to be a great apologist. That doesn't mean we should not study to show ourselves approved unto God. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be mature in our faith and ready to respond. But most of us aren't going to have to defend the faith in a debate. He doesn't want us thinking about prominence because he knows how dangerous that is and how many people fall when they get well-known. And besides, each of us probably struggles with personal courage, just like the disciples did. And the Lord hasn't said, well, you have to be the one who convinces everybody. You have to be the one who, who changes people's hearts. That's the word of the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't always say you have to go in some remote tribal jungle and share with people that aren't wearing clothes and don't speak your language and spend 80 years there translating. Listen, some people are called to that, and God bless them. That's a hard job. But he doesn't necessarily call us to that. What does he call us to? Look at the text. It's so simple. Verse 22, he calls us to simply and humbly tell what we have seen and experienced. That's the secret. That's the key to being witnesses that are more effective. The disciples, as they established the foundation for the early church, set the basis for spiritual growth and evangelism and everything else. But they did not know it at the time. They didn't have a plan to carry out and yet their work abides and their testimony abides even longer. So this morning, let's not overcomplicate it. But let's also not, not make it too simple. 
We're called to follow their example. What is their example? Verse 22, their example is that they testified. Now for them, it was to say, I walked with him for three years. There was never a shred of inconsistency. He constantly spent time alone with the Father and he came back and there was a power and a dynamic to his ministry and he healed and raised people from the dead and his teaching challenged the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who wanted to kill him and they finally got him. And when that happened, we were there. And he was silent. He said he was going to go to the cross, but we didn't quite get it. And then we saw him betrayed and arrested. And we stood far back because we were scared. And we thought we were going to die, but it was just him. They just wanted him. And they took him to the cross and he died. We watched it. We had no hope and expectation that he would rise again. And then the women came back. And we still didn't quite believe it. And then Jesus appeared to us. And not just to the 12 of us, he appeared to over 500 of us. And, and we touched him. And, and we talked with him. And then we just saw him go back to heaven. And he said, he'll be coming back. Now, now, I'm nothing to write home about. And I don't know theology. And I don't know all the nuance. And I'll, I'll tell you, I can't explain it all. But I will tell you, I know what I've seen and what I've I know what I've experienced and there's not a shadow of a doubt that I'm different and it's because of his resurrection. Why is there that gap between Jesus going up and the spirit coming down? I believe one of the main reasons is that so we can see that the change took hold. Because prior to his death, they're fearful, they're hesitant, they're self-centered. After he ascends, they're bold and ready and calling on the Lord and saying, Lord, send him on down. Bring him down to us. We're ready. And the Holy Spirit comes down, and we'll see this next week. The Holy Spirit comes down, and everything changes. But for years I've thought it was only because the Holy Spirit came down. I'm convinced now that the change took place in between. They got it. Their testimony was a combination of powerful truth and firsthand knowledge and experience. And while we didn't physically walk with Christ, and while we didn't touch his hands and his feet, we have had just the same experience. Listen carefully now. We've had just the same experience of knowing his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his redemption and his purchase, and his indwelling, and his power. We have had the exact same experience as believers that they did. And now we are called to talk about it. Listen, if our faith is just a set of rules, if it's just do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, do, 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 don't, 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 do, 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 12 commandments, boop, 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 it's like a video game. If it's just rules, then our words to people are going to be dry and judgmental and eventually they're going to be antagonistic. Well, you didn't do this and you must not be a believer because you didn't follow this law. We kind of get that burning in our throat, right? That law. Stretch it out to four syllables. It's all about 
the law. It's all about the rules. Well, if it's all about the rules, then why are the Bible's rules better than all the other rules? Or then there are people that say, well, it's all about my emotion and my experience. No. It's all about that. And oh, oh, and every time they talk, they start to cry. It's all, I feel it. I feel the Lord. Listen, that's good. Don't. But it's not all feelings, right? Because what are feelings? They're subjective. And they're temporary. And they change with the circumstances. And they're unreliable. And when it's all based on emotion and experience and we all start to get, oh, oh, it's great. No, no, this, this, this. Listen, then there's no firm basis for doctrine and theology. Or, or, or if it's just centered on the historicity of it. Well, I know for a fact that Jesus was alive because look at this article and this article and he died this way and this happened in medically. And all. That, that's great. We need to know those things. But we also have to understand that man... Every man, including us, has a deep spiritual need. And Christ came to rescue us from our chronic, eternal death sentence. Listen, all those factors are fine and they're necessary together. The law, God is the lawgiver, the rules for life, the way to live, what makes sense, what's best the emotion of how our lives have been changed and transformed and the breaking of our soul so that we could walk with Christ and the truth that we know that Jesus Christ is real, it still hasn't been disproven. Nobody could still say there's his grave. The grave they have is empty. So we have the law, we have the grace and emotion we have the historicity of it. They all work together. And then when we do that, nothing will be more powerful as we talk about those things to, than to say, the way I know that it's really true is because of what's happened in me. Jesus Christ is my Savior. I saw it. I know it. He's alive. It's changed me forever. You can deny it and you can repudiate it and you can call me a fool. But I'm telling you, this happened. And just in case people think, well, you're just taking the easy way out. Religion's a crutch. Hey, I got to tell you, salvation requires a complete admission that I'm completely wrong and that I'm at fault. And walking with Christ requires the full sacrifice of my will. It requires me saying, I'm willing to say my life is not my own. I put myself under his power and control and I have to call on his name continuously because I have no wisdom. I don't have any guidance. I need his help. And now my job is to help people know him and mature in their faith so they can help people know him and mature in their faith. You want to call that easy? Come join us. There's nothing easy about it. Faith is not a crutch. Faith is difficult. If it was so easy, then we'd all walk by it, right? I don't know about you, but I struggle with walking by faith every day. So don't let people lie to you and say, well, it's just easy. You're at the easy way out. God just solves all your sins. You don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I deny myself daily. Because myself is strong. 
listen, if I'm going to make something up, I'm going to make it a lot more socially acceptable and a lot easier for myself. Why would we serve Christ, let alone testify about him, if it wasn't true? We do it, listen, I'm done. We do it because of what he has done. And look, finally, verse 22 and 25, at what that calls us to do. Not only are we told to be his witnesses, by witnesses we mean people who have seen the fact of the resurrection. Not only are we called to be witnesses, look at the last two words, we're called to occupy this ministry and apostleship. Now for Matthias, that meant taking Judas's place. But for you and I, it's going to look different. But the responsibility is the same. Let me take one minute to explain this and we're going to pray. What does it mean to occupy? It means to make it your own. Occupy this ministry. Make this ministry your own. It, it's personal. Ministry is personal. It's driven by a heart that's been changed by Christ and is stirred to let other people know about Him. Occupy the ministry, church. We have a chance to occupy the ministry this week. Not just cleaning a building, not just helping the grills move. That, that is an occupation of ministry. But as we go out to tell people, this is what happened to me. Oh, you just can't imagine what my life used to be like. Not talking about church not talking about religion, not, not sterile. I'm, I'm talking about what's happened in my life. Occupy it. Own it. Second, the way we do that shown in the other two words, ministry. It's the Greek word diakonos or deacon. The job of the deacon is to faithfully and selflessly serve others to honor Christ. So make it your own ministry, church, to faithfully and selflessly serve others in honest to Christ, honor to Christ. And then second, occupy the job of an apostle. What's an apostle mean? It means a messenger or an envoy. Someone who takes the word out. You'll be my apostles. They were disciples. They learned. They grew. They matured. They walked with him. We all need to be disciples. But we also need to be apostles. Apostle means now I go out. Now I take it out. Part of the reason we came up with the concept of the harbor for our name is, this is the place where you get filled up and discipled. Why? So you sit in the harbor for the rest of your life? Uh-uh. So we go out. Because the work's out there. Occupy the work of an apostle. See, the Lord put those jobs on them. And he puts them on us. Filled with the Spirit, set apart to holiness, mature in our faith and in our doctrine and our lifestyle, committed to occupy the work of ministry. What a great calling. What a privilege to be able to serve the Lord this way. And let me challenge and encourage us this morning. There is nothing that should cause us to shy away from that. There is nothing that should scare us or intimidate us. Or, or, or cause us to be hesitant because, listen, He's faithful and His Spirit will empower us 
and His Spirit will give us the words. He promises that. When you don't know what to say, be ready, because the Spirit will give you the words, and He'll tell you what to say, and you can tell people, here's what I saw. Here's what's happened. Is that the job this morning? Are you, are you all in for that job? Or I don't know. Because this is what He's called us to do. Let's close our eyes for a moment. Let's just ask the Spirit of God right now to speak to our hearts and minds. As I said at the start, this is one of the hardest topics that we have. It's easy for us to get together and eat and fellowship. It's easy for us to listen to a message. We start to talk about prayer and sacrifice and surrender and calling and apostleship. That's that's when it gets more difficult. And then we say, well, go out and be witnesses. So we have to acknowledge this morning before the Lord, you and I, just between us and Him. Any hesitation, any doubt, any fear, any rebellion, we're not doing what He's called us to do. We could study the techniques of evangelism. We could talk about how to be effective in reaching people in their situation. Those things are fine. But there is nothing that is going to draw people to Christ more than the clear evidence that our life has been changed. So whatever needs to fall for that to happen, Whatever needs to change in you and me for us to open our mouths and say, this is what he's done. We need to bring that before the Lord right now. Father, what a grand and glorious calling you've given us to testify about you. You've given us all we need to be able to tell others about the change that's taken place in our lives. And where we have hesitation and doubt, you've given us your Holy Spirit to give us power and confidence and strength to speak those words. Lord, I acknowledge my own hesitation at times forthright to say the words that need to be said to let the, the opportunity pass by sometimes when it's clear that it's an opening Lord I pray for myself and for this church for each brother and sister in this room who's been redeemed by you that you would open our mouths give us a great powerful testimony and witness of how you changed our lives Lord even if we've been in church all our lives we still know transformation so Lord give us the boldness of the apostles give us courage remind us that your spirit is present and working in us and Lord give us the opportunities to share and to talk about your mercy and your forgiveness and your redemption 
Father, I pray you'd strengthen us. We know that the enemy's been working hard this week, and we know that he's going to continue to work hard to create doubt and hesitation in our minds because he doesn't want to hear the gospel preached. So, Lord, defeat him again and again and again. Give us the confidence to do this great calling. We thank you and praise you that you are sufficient and you're faithful. You never leave us or forsake us. You'll never not come alongside us as we talk about you. So strengthen us for this great calling, we pray. In Jesus' name.